Thank you, Andy, and thank you so much, Ms. Rita, for helping us out with our music on Wednesday. It means a lot to all of us, I'm sure. So, But tonight we want to continue in our study as we're looking together at the topic of the nearness of Christ's return. And what I'm going to be addressing tonight is the term, this generation, specifically, is it historic or prophetic? So if you'll open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21, this is going to be our launching pad to begin with, and then we're going to be going through a number of passages uh, this evening as we work together regarding this topic. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 through 36. We have really just stepped away from our study in the book of Romans, and uh, believe me, we will return to that to finish up chapter 11. And uh, But before we do that, there's a few messages I would like to share with you, just a few things to kind of put in our pockets to think about regarding the nearness of Christ's return. I've told you this before, that with the advent of the Internet, we have had an availability of a great amount of information. And, of course, the information comes at us sometimes um, in such a large amounts, it's hard to digest everything. The algorithms that are put in place by this technology, whenever you search for one thing, you end up getting a boatload of information, videos, podcasts, and everything else regarding that particular subject. So you have to be careful, you have to be discerning to know what is good, what is bad, what to keep, what not to keep. Not everybody online is true. And not everybody online is accurate, and not everybody handles the Word of God accurately, so you need to be careful with all of that. And as I would always encourage anyone whenever you're studying the Scripture, and particularly when it comes to eschatology, don't drop in one position and stay there without looking at all the other available information regarding the other positions as far as eschatology goes. We would call those positions in eschatology secondary issues, meaning that we're not going to hold someone accountable to make sure they're orthodox, just so long as they agree with us, whether we're premillennial, historic premillennial, you know, amillennial or postmillennial. That's a secondary issue as far as our commitments is concerned. But as I've told you before, it is very important that we believe in the literal, visible return of Jesus Christ and the bodily resurrection and the final judgment, which every confession of faith that has any weight to it at all addresses that and makes that very clear. But my point is this, is whenever you're studying a subject, especially like eschatology, it's not a good thing just to stay in your own camp and always read everything that supports your own camp because you may find out that there are some other areas that may challenge where you are and where you believe regarding your eschatology. And that is especially true when it comes to the topic of this generation that is found in Luke 21, Mark 24, and Mark 13. That is one of those passages that often gives a lot of people a lot of trouble and a lot of pause when it comes to how we understand those eschatological passages. So with that said, let me read what it says in Luke 21, Luke 21, verse 25. The Word of God says, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now verse 29. 
Then he, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know that yourselves that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I would like you just for a moment to take special notice of verse 35, where Luke records for us, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. In other words, what we're doing and what we're seeing here in this passage is a telescoping of the prophetic events. It's moving from a localized event in Jerusalem that would occur in 70 AD, some 40 years later, to a worldwide event, uh, an event that would cover and affect, as indicated in verse 35, the face of the whole earth. In fact, that telescoping can be seen in chapter 21 and verse 20, whenever Luke says, as he records what our Lord said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of it depart from her, and let those who are in the country, let those who are not in the country enter into her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days, and those that are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land, in wrath upon this people. And no doubt, clearly, uh, Luke is recording for us what our Lord is referring to, that there's going to be a, a problem, a war, a desolation, an attack on Jerusalem. And he's warning them about that that would come. But then you see, as it progresses through the text, that we find ourselves dealing with cosmic signs in the sky. Not just apocalyptic hyperbole, as I talked about last Wednesday. This is not just apocalyptic language, because Luke says there will be signs in the sun. There will be signs in the moon, and there will be signs in the stars. And then as Jesus continues in verse 35, it will come as a trap. That's the word for snare. It will come as a trap on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now, some have tried to take that phrase in verse 35 to make that simply to mean all those who dwell in the land of Israel. Because the word earth, gase, is the word that can be understood as land. And so they would say that all this refers to is that trap that's going to come on all those who dwell in the face of the land of Israel. The problem with that is, is that that's not what Jesus intended. And the reason why is because there's a number of ways in which you could say that. Just earlier in the text, just a couple of verses earlier, he uses the same exact same Greek word to refer to the earth. It's the same Greek word, but he says heaven and earth will not pass away. 
we don't mean there the heaven and the land of Israel will not pass away. That's a repeated phrase that Jesus uses a number of times to refer to the eternality of the word of God. This same phrase here given in verse 35 that those who dwell on the face of the whole earth is used in Acts 17, 26, where the apostle Paul said of God that he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on all the face of the earth. That is a universal phrase. That is a phrase that involves not just a localized geographical plot of land, but encompasses, as indicated, the whole face of the whole earth. One author said this, The judgment involves everyone. All who live on the face of the whole earth, no one will escape evaluation. So there's a telescoping. This is not uncommon. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is telescoping of prophetic literature. It moves from the local events of God's judgment to a more universal judgment. It moves from a historical event to a prophetical event. It moves from the minimal to the maximum you begin to see long ranges of mountains, and you don't see the valleys in between. You can't tell how close they are together from the distance with which you look. But eventually, we know from the Word of God that this long range of mountain ranges is going to culminate with a mountain made without hands. That is going to come whenever the Lord returns and brings His kingdom, as He even says in Luke 21, that is near. So the prophetic statements of Jesus here in this passage, and also Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which are the parallel passages, are not just historical realities. And I think it's very, very troublesome whenever you make all of those passages just historical events. And I've told you this before, I don't want to belabor the point. But the point is, is that there's more going on here. And the Lord is answering, as I told you earlier, he's answering three questions. And those three questions are being answered in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 of the Synoptic Gospels. Whenever you begin to make all of these things that I've just read, just historical realities in 70 AD, this is an oversimplification of the text. And I believe that it is a misreading of the text, honestly. I think it does not give credibility to the Word of God in the sense that whenever you compare these passages with the Pauline letters and you begin to see how he uses these words and how he referred to these words and no doubt clearly got his eschatology from the Lord himself and all the parallels that are given there are absolutely amazing and not only to add to that whenever you look at the book of Revelation and you see the parallels there and John the Apostle having received his revelation from Jesus Christ and no doubt was a student there listening to the Lord in Matthew 24 on the Olivet Discourse, he would have been clearly uh, understanding what our Lord meant by that. But confusion does abound, I'll have to tell you that, and it does because of some of these words that are given in the New Testament specifically that most refer to, and these are these time texts that I've referred to, and misunderstanding occurs by simply misunderstanding them. And misunderstanding how these are used, not only in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. The words like, it is near, it is at hand, it is at the door, it is coming soon, I am coming quickly, Jesus says. But the number one uh, word or words that is often used to 
talk about this time text or even the confusion regarding it is the one found in Luke and also Matthew and Mark. But specifically, I would refer to Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 24:34, And you can turn there if you would like. Just go back to Matthew 24 and verse 34. This is the number one time text that is often uh, misapplied, misunderstood, I believe, regarding the eschatology of these passages. And it is the word, this generation. This generation. What does Jesus say? He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, at face value, if you read that text just as it is, without thinking too heavily about it, you're going to find out that probably, as many do assume, that that means that everything that is recorded in verse or Matthew 24 all the way up to verse 33 will take place before this one generation that is alive at the time of Christ sharing these words, that all of these things will take place before they die. So what you end up with is all of the eschatological references in Matthew 24 and all of the references to the abomination of desolation and all of the references to the great tribulation that's unlike anything in the history of the world and the cosmic disturbances and the coming of Christ and the angels and the gathering of the elect would all occur and would have to occur in first century AD. Because after all, does it not say in verse 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It sure sounds like it, doesn't it? Well, hold your horses a minute. Let's just think about it a second. Let's back up and let's begin to think. Remember what I did last Wednesday, which is absolutely critical to understand. There are two anchors that hold you in place here on this passage. There are compasses given to us to keep us in the right direction regarding this passage. And the first is the questions that Jesus gives us, or rather the disciples ask of Jesus, and they are three questions. When will these things be regarding the temple destruction? What will be the sign of your parousia, your presence, your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Those three questions. And by the way, this past week, for the first time in the entire time I've studied this subject, I found someone who said there were three questions. I was amazed. I thought I was the only one. But there's actually people out there seeing it, too. That There's three questions there, not just two. But the point is, is that that is one of the anchors that holds you to help you to interpret this passage. That Jesus is indeed answering all three of those questions. The other one that I believe is absolutely essential for you to understand is that Jesus is talking about the very literal, visible, physical return of Christ in what we call the second coming or the second advent. Where he comes in the sky, in the clouds, to not only eventually judge the world in his own wrath, but also to rapture and to take his people out of here before he pours out his wrath. And that's what he's talking about in Matthew 24, verse 29 and following, when he talks about there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, 
There will be a great earthquake, a great seismic event, a great shaking. The sky is going to recede as a scroll, as it says in Revelation 6. Jesus will show up in the sky, in the cloud, just like he ascended back. says in Acts chapter 1, just like he went back. He's coming back physically, visibly, in the sky, in a cloud. He's going to send forth his angels with the sound of a trumpet, and he will gather together his elect from the four winds. Folks, that is not a spiritual event. That is not something to be allegorized away. That is clearly by the text that is used, by the words that are used, by the repetitive nature of the words used by Paul in the New Testament, a physical, visible coming of Jesus Christ. That has been the historic position of the church all the way back to the disciples of the apostles and the church fathers. They believed that this event referred to the literal, physical, visible return of Jesus Christ. So now that you understand that, I hope, whenever you read the text in verse 34, you have to ask yourself a question. Well, what does this mean then? What generation? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. He hasn't. We're not hyper-preterists. We don't believe that Jesus has already come back. We're not like the Jehovah Witnesses who believe that he already came back and now we have to deal with some more room in the kingdom and get more than 144,000 slots available. We're not there. We don't believe that. We believe that there's a future advent of the physical return of Jesus Christ and that this passage is specifically telling us that will happen. That is answering the question. Whenever the disciples ask this question, what will be the sign of your coming? The parousia. What did Jesus say? Then you will see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. There's the answer. The sign is he shows up. You want to know what the sign is? There's cosmic disturbances, and then he shows up. That's a big sign. If he's in the sky, and according to Revelation 1 and other passages, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. How that works out, I have no idea. I grant you, though, based upon what I know from the Word of God, it will happen. It will happen. I personally believe that the cosmic disturbances are going to cause great darkness, and Jesus is going to show up, as Thessalonians says, in blazing glory. Now, this is not some wimpy glory. Okay? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're talking about the resurrected Christ so brilliant, so bright, as it says in Revelation chapter 1, he glows like the sun. So much so that whenever we get into the new heavens and the new earth, you know what it says? We don't have a need for a sun anymore. Why? Jesus is the sun. The glory of God lights it all. I grant you, when he shows up to this planet, there's going to be a lot of questions happening. A lot of cell towers are going to shut down because nobody's going to be able to talk on their phones because there's going to be billions of texts going everywhere at one time. What? Did you see this? Did you see this? It's going to be everywhere in a matter of seconds. So I'm not concerned about how that works out. I know that the Bible says it. And just as much as I don't understand how in the world it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. He didn't go to the Home Depot and get anything. He actually created everything with a spoken word, and it, it appeared. I don't understand that. And thank God I don't, 
Because if I was, I might be God and all of you would be in trouble. The point is, is listen, whenever God says it's going to happen, he, it will happen. It will happen just like he said it's going to happen. So what does he mean then? If we believe this is the actual second coming of Christ and the visible return of Christ in these passages, how are we to understand verse 34? Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Well, there are, based upon scholarship, Bible teachers, and those who study these topics, four possibilities. Four possibilities. And you're going to have to ask yourself where you land in these possibilities. I'm going to show you some of the strengths of them, particularly two of them. And you're going to uh, have to work yourself through that and find out where you land on it. First of all, the one that is probably the most simple is that it refers to the people living at that time. That is the generation that was alive at the time that Jesus preached that. And it would include even what we call the second coming. They would call a, a coming or the second coming. The final one in the future would be called the final coming. But the point is, this generation would refer to the people living at that time. That generation, that 40-year slot of people, if you will. Another view is that it refers to the people living at the time seeing all these things. But not the second coming. In other words, it still would refer to the actual generation that is alive at that time, but they would only see, quote, all these things, which does not refer to the second coming, and I'll explain that in a few moments. Three, it refers to the people living at the time of the coming of Christ. In other words, this is a generation in the future that will be alive at the time that these events take place, so this generation that would see the coming of Christ would also witness all these other events. And then the fourth one is, is that this word, this generation, refers to the character of the people. And what I mean by that is the quality of the people, uh, the kind of people they are at that time that Jesus was talking. So let's just kind of work our way through them. We'll spend more time on two of them than we will the other two. But the first one is this, and this is the one that is a growing popular view today. And that is this, is that it refers, the generation or this generation refers to the people living at the time that Jesus spoke. And that they would be alive, Jesus speaking, let's just estimate, somewhere around 32, 33 A.D. And most believe that a generation is about 40 years. And they would say that the people that were alive that heard him that day or heard his teaching or perhaps even the ones that were just alive and never even heard the teaching would be the ones that actually were alive whenever these events took place and they would say that that means also that Jerusalem would be sacked by the Romans, the temple would be destroyed, and even the second coming, as we call it in this passage, would refer to a spiritual coming invisibly in the sky, if you will, to judge in that context. And that's what they would say. So that generation would be alive whenever that took place. The problem with that is this, is that eventually what happens is, because you take that word generation to mean that one living at that time, you end up reading back into the text and making that one understanding of generation to, mean, to be the means by which you interpret every single thing in that text. When in fact, as I've just shared with you, that's not the way you look at the text. There are three questions being asked. And there's a physical, visible return of Christ happening in the text. But some would take, well, obviously it's the generation of that time, so therefore that must mean that this coming in this passage 
is not a literal, physical return of Christ. Because we wouldn't go as far as the hyper-preterist and say that he's already come back. They wouldn't be willing to go that far. Now, this is the simplest view. This is the easiest one. But I believe, as I've told you before, this is an oversimplification of the, of the text or of the passage. It ignores the three questions, I believe, that are being asked. And it denies the obvious language that is used by Jesus, referring to his literal, visible parousia with the angels gathering together the elect. So there's the first view. It's very simple to understand. Those that are alive at that time would see all of this take place. And then some extrapolate off that and say, well, that means also that all the book of Revelation is fulfilled. Some take it as far as even the new heavens and the new earth being already living in that time period. The second one is this. It refers to the people living at that time, but they would only see all these things. And that would not include the second coming. Now, John Piper takes this position. I think he does a good job arguing for it, too. I think he really does. I think he has a, a, a good grip on the text. I think there's more going on there than that, although I do highly respect his position on it. And what he basically does is this. He takes the word, all these things, and he takes it in a very narrow, definitive, absolute way to define exactly what it is that this generation will see. The Greek translation of all these things is panta tauta. It's just it's used a couple of times in the passage. Like, let me just go back, if you will. If you look at Matthew twenty four thirty three, Matthew twenty four thirty three, and follow along with me, Jesus says, "So you also, when you see all these things, panta tauta, there you have it. It's all these things. Know that it is near at the doors." Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, what is important to distinguish there in that text is this. As John Piper correctly points out, that all these things does not include the second coming. Because, if you'll notice the text again, verse 33, if you can follow with me, so you also, when you see all these things, Know that it or he is near. In other words, he's near, but he's not here. All these things does not include the actual coming of Christ, but are those things that lead up to and would be precursors to the coming of Christ. So what are all these things? What's he talking about? What is it then that they will see? with the exception of the second coming. Well, back up. Matthew 24, 4. Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. And again, now he's beginning to answer these questions, right? The three questions. He's launching into these questions and answering them. Take heed that no one else deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying that I am the Messiah, that's the word Christos, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, and by the way, that word troubled there is only used here and by the Apostle Paul. It's a unique word that Paul picks up on from the teaching of Jesus. See that you are not troubled for all these things 
must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, in that text, the all these things, you'll see these things in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek manuscripts. There is the word panta there, apos for all, but the these things is not there. It is later on, and it assumes it to be there based upon the way the text reads. But verse 7 says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Now notice verse 8, All these Things, because the word things is assumed by the word there, these, in the Greek text, is the same Greek words. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So what's the beginning of sorrows? What is the panta tauta there? Well, this is what it is. It's the coming of false messiahs, false teachers, false Christ. It's the wars and rumors of wars. It's the famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. That's the word there beginning of sorrows. It's not the end yet. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. So in this text, Jesus clearly refers to all these things as those I just mentioned. And also in verse uh, 7 and 8, he uses that word, I mean, verse 8 rather, panta tauta. But Luke adds this, and this is an important uh, addition to this. You need to understand this also, that these things, all these things includes something that Luke makes clear in chapter 21, verse 12. You don't need to turn to it, but just notice this. Luke says, but before all these things, all right, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought out before the kings and the rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for a testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed into the hands even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Luke adds this and puts it before the beginning of sorrows, saying that this is going to be the beginning of all of this. It's going to start off with persecution. It's going to start off with hostility against the disciples of Christ. They're going to be hated, maligned, betrayed. They're going to be brought before kings and rulers. They're going to be put to death and killed. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. That's what we see in the early church history. But then following that, according to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, there's going to be a rise of false prophets, false Christ. There's going to be a rise of wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against kingdoms, earthquakes, pestilences, and so forth. And these are the all things that he's talking about. And I also would add that according to Luke's passage in Luke 21, 20, that it would also include the ransacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple there. Because in Luke 21, 20, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you know that its desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. And you know the rest of the text. I don't need to go into all of that because we've already been over that a number of times. And even Jesus says there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive into all nations. And then he adds this telescoping statement. He says, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until, until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. By the way, we're going to get into that in Romans chapter 11. For all of those who don't like dispensationalism, 
this is a dispensational thought. You have a bracket of Gentile domination over Jerusalem. And you have a time that that ends. And then God begins to work again with Israel, as indicated in the text. But the point I'm trying to bring to you is that all these things would include the beginning of sorrows, the persecution of the people of God, and clearly, no doubt, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And Jesus is very, very specific, if you remember, about this. He says that that generation will see all these things. But as indicated in the text, as I read to you, the all these things only brings Jesus near. It doesn't bring him here. And again, that nearness of language, which we'll look at more in the next coming weeks, doesn't mean he's, he's right there. When you're talking about prophetic eschatological language of nearness, as we all note from what even Peter reminds us of, is that a thousand years is this one day. Whenever people start scoffing at it, say, oh, his return's never coming. He's been talking about this for 2,000 years. He said it was near. He said it was even at the door. Jesus would come quickly. He's been saying that for 2,000 years. And Peter says, don't you know? Don't you understand? That a day with the Lord is like, two thousand, like, a, like a thousand years. I mean, it's only been two days to God. It's near. It's near. When you think about the future and eternity, folks, the coming of Christ is very near. Very near. So that is a view that I think a number of uh, even scholars have taken that position. I think D.A. Carson has taken that position. He takes a little bit of a different division as far as where these things happen, but he does understand the, all these things there. And I think John Piper has some very good points to make here, that he would say that the generation is indeed the generation of that time and that they would see precursors of the event because they did see famine, they did see pestilence, they did see and hear of earthquakes, and there were things going on. And there definitely were rumors of wars and wars and nations rising against nations and the, 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 the Roman armies gathering together to come against Jerusalem. And the warning that is given in Matthew to, to flee, which they did because of that text. But as I'll show you in the next couple of weeks, there's more going on there than just that. By far, much more going on. So it would include not only all of those things, but it would not include the actual return of Christ. That's the second view. The third view is this. It refers to the people living at the time of the coming of Christ. Now, this is the position that John MacArthur takes. He takes this position that this generation refers to the generation that is alive at that time. It could be us. It could be after us. It could be three generations past us. Whatever it is, it would be whatever that generation is, that the one that begins to see the beginning of these sorrows happen as they escalate to the end, they would see the emergence of Antichrist. They would see the tri tribulation that would come on the world, the persecution of the people of God. All of that would happen, and they would be the same people that are alive at the moment of the return of Christ. So he says, as some agree with him, that this only refers to the generation alive at the time in the future of the coming of Christ. That's pretty straightforward. No need to go any further with that one. You understand that view, I'm sure. 
But there's a fourth one. And the fourth one's where I'm going to spend more of my time because I believe this probably has more weight, honestly. I, I tend to uh, like a lot of what John Piper says and what he has pointed out and what other scholars have pointed out regarding the, all these things. I think there's definitely some credibility to that. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's more going on here with this word generation. And so the fourth position of this would be that it refers to the character of the people living at that time. Like we would say this in our culture. We'd say, boy, we are living in an evil generation. Right? Well, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that every single person's evil? Hopefully not. Hopefully you guys are not living that way, right? We would know that there's still a great deposit of God's people in America and that there's great churches out there still who love the Lord and want to serve Christ and God is growing his kingdom, yes. But we would all agree, we would say this, we're living in an evil generation. So when he uses the word generation, it doesn't necessarily mean a time span. We have a tendency to just read it like we read the English newspaper or a novel. And we think English, 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 and that's all we think. Generation means my generation in the sense of, you know, my generation. See, I'm 50. How old am I now? 58, 59 soon. Okay, my generation. And then there's some people in here who are of a different generation. There's some people in here of a generation that's almost extinct. But I'm just saying. And there's some new generations starting up, right? And some believe that the generation and you can find a number of people in different ways on this. Some say, well, it's 30 years. Some say 40 years. Some say 70 years. It's a generation a span of time. Whenever one generation passes away and the other generation kind of takes over and becomes the dominant. And it's usually it's about 40 years. Usually about 40 years. The Greek word translated here, generation, genea. Interestingly enough, does not primarily mean a time of span, a, a span of time. It does not. In fact, most of the Greek lexicons, and I have a boatload of them, the first definition of the word genea here, translated generation, doesn't have anything to do at all with a span of time. Or generation in the sense of the way we think of it. Let me just share a few of them with you, and I'm going to bore you to death with this. So stay awake. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, that's the title of the book, says that the word genea, the first definition it gives of the word genea, is a product of the act of generating. In other words, what it's talking about there is generation in the sense we think of regeneration, being born. Fathers producing sons and sons producing more sons and on and on and on it goes. They're thinking of generation that way. It refers specifically and especially to kinship, familial connections and ancestry. It also refers to those who exhibit common characteristics, interest, race, or kind. The New American Standard Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek Dictionary states that the word genea is race, family, or kind. Now, I'm giving you the first definition of them because Greek words have a number of definitions depending on their context. 
But what it's doing here is it's showing you the predominant, primary, number one way to understand Ganea is this way. And then you can step down to other ways in which it can be understood based upon the context. Because you can find this word used, like in Matthew chapter 1, that talks about 14 generations. It talks about the generations that led up to Jesus and his birth, which does refer to a span of time. But the number one and primary understanding of the word Ganea, according to those lexicons, and then the other one is the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis, says the Ganea means race, clan, descendant, family, race, or family tree in one form of it. Liddell and Scott's Greek lexicon says that it refers to persons of one family or race or family. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament based on semantic domains, I'll get you a copy of it, <laughs> is the Greek word means ethnic group, cultural similarities, people of the same kind. The New Testament International Dictionary of Theology and Exegesis also adds that this word genea and genos is derived from the word genomai, which means to become. Whenever it says that you became something, that's the word genomai. And they're saying that the word genea and genos is from the word, derived from the word genomai, to be born. It is used as early as Homer in reference to a group of people who have common ancestry, whether in the sense of family or other broad, broad language like clan or lineage or race. It has been used to refer to birthplace, class, kind, and genus. And then the big one, the one that will read you to death if you have enough life to live, is the one Kittle. Kittle's dictionary, theological dictionary of the New Testament. I read from the abridged version because I literally did not have enough time in my life to read the whole thing. But in the abridged version, which summarizes all that they say about the word genea, it means birth, descent, progeny, race, it mostly deals with the qualifications of that particular generation, like an adulterous generation, an unbelieving or corrupt generation, a crooked generation, a perverse generation. And then Kittle goes on to say, the use of generation by Jesus expresses his comprehensive purpose. That is, he aims at the whole people and is conscious of their solidity in sin. Or their solidarity in sin. And if you're not following with me, I'll bring it to you in just a moment. I just wanted to show you that I'm not making this up. Spirios Zotiates, in his complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, stated regarding the word genea that it can refer to the sameness of stock. He said this, and I quote his words, the word Ganea in Matthew 24, 34, may have had reference to the kind of Jew, notice the words, the kind of Jew with whom Jesus was conversing during that particular time. He was telling them that this generation or this type of people, such as the Sadducees and the Pharisees of that day, would not pass away until all these things occurred and until his coming again in the parousia. Second coming, that is, which has proven to be true. In other words, we still have these kinds of people around today, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, even of the Jewish race. 
And you see also in the New Testament, especially the way the word is used, it's never used in a positive way in the sense whenever it's used in reference to a kind of people, like it's, it refers to the uh, faith, faithless generation in Mark nine nineteen, the faithless and perverse generation in Matthew 17, the wicked generation in Matthew twelve forty five, the evil and adulterous generation in Matthew twelve thirty nine. Jesus calls it an evil generation in Luke eleven twenty nine, an adulterous and sinful generation in Mark eight, and even Peter calls them in the Jews that is in Acts two forty a perverse generation. Paul refers to the world at that time because it was a Greek culture primarily. He calls them a crooked and perverse generation. In Acts 2.40, the one I just referred to, and I want you to see this if you could turn with me just for a moment. Acts 2.40. This is where Peter uses the word, a Jew, referring to the people around him, which were the primary, the Jewish culture in which he lived. And he's preaching the word of God and preaching the sermon, and people are coming to Christ as a result of it. And in verse 40, this is Acts 2.40, it says, And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, listen to this, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, folks, if you're alive at that time, and generation only means a span of time of 40 years when a certain group of people live, you can't leave. How are you saved from it? How are you out of it? Taken out of it? He's saying be saved from this perverse generation. In other words, if you're saved from it, you're no longer part of it. So he means more by generation than just the span of time of a population at that time. Philippians 2.14 is another one. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What is Paul saying is if you are a non-complainer, then you're going to be a child of God who is blameless and harmless, and you're not going to be part of this perverse and crooked generation. You're going to live in the midst of it. There's a line being drawn between the perverse, crooked generation of that time and the people of God. So he's not just talking primarily about a span of time of a generation, but rather the characteristic and quality of a group of people living at that time. In fact, I believe that uh, Paul picks up on the uh, terminology from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.5, where Moses says, They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. And it is clear from the words of Jesus that whenever he uses the term generation, he can refer to a group of people, the character of a people, living within a certain span of time. But what the Bible does with this term, the word generation, it actually goes further than that. It takes it further than that. It incorporates more time than just the time of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 23. Back up there for a moment. Matthew 23. I have a few minutes more if you'll hang with me, okay? Matthew 23. I think personally this is one of the, one of the most profound passages regarding this 
in the New Testament. Matthew 23, 29. Now, you know Matthew 23 is Jesus' personal rebuke of the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel. A scathing rebuke of their hypocrisy and their religious hypocrisy. Matthew 23, 29, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. In other words, if, if we were living during that time, we never would have killed them. I mean, we're good people. We're the best thing that's ever happened. We're better than sliced bread. Right? That's what they're saying. They're saying we're not like our fathers. If we lived, I've heard people say that if I was in the Garden of Eden, I never would have ate that fruit. Really? Really? Okay. Anyway, so here they are saying the same thing in general. That Look, we're not like our fathers. We would never have done that if we lived back then. Then Jesus says this in verse 31. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons. Listen to the language. Sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you're of the same generation. You're the same people. What are you talking about? You're the sons of them. Then he says this in verse 30. Fill up. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. In other words, go ahead. Fill up the rest of it. Bring it to completion. Do the rest of it which is going to be, no doubt, the murder of Christ and the apostles later. He says in verse 33, picking up again on Old Testament imagery from the prophets and even Moses, he calls them serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from your city. In other words, Jesus is prophesying now. He's saying, listen, you say that you're not as bad as your fathers. I'm going to send you some prophets. I'm going to send you some scribes. I'm going to send you some men, and you're going to kill them. You're going to crucify them. You're going to scourge them in your synagogues. You're going to persecute them from city to city. And then he says this in verse 35, that on you, this is really interesting, that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. How did they do that? They weren't even alive at that time. They weren't back at the temple with Zechariah. How did they do it? They did it up in verse 30. Our fathers. Our fathers did it. We're the sons of the fathers. We're going to do the same things our fathers did. We're of the same generation. And Jesus says, listen, he takes the whole group. He lumps them all together in one. He says, all of you are of the same kind, the same generation, the same people. You murdered all the way back in Cain's day. And you carry it all the way up, all the way up. To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Which the men that he was talking to that day were not physically present at that time, nor were they even alive. That would have been easily over 400, 500 years earlier. 
So Jesus is taking them all together. And what does he say in verse 36? Assuredly, I say to you, all these things, referring to the coming of wrath upon them, will come upon this generation. What generation? Just those guys? Are they going to pay? Are they the only ones that are going to pay for the murder in the past? No. We know that from Ezekiel chapter 18, that a man is not guilty for the sins of his father. That's the whole social justice thing, right? You remember that? People were saying, oh, you're guilty because, you know, your grandma did this back, back so-and-so. No, no, I wasn't there. We know biblical justice means I'm not guilty for what my father did. What my father did, I'm not guilty for. But what Jesus is saying is this. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is going to come on this whole generation of people. These people who are hateful murderers of the prophets and the people of God, these Jewish leaders of Israel. It takes generation to be much more than just a simple 40-year period. Much bigger than that. Much bigger than that. Verse 37, he cries out in one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills with the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. And by the way, this is more than just the three-year period of ministry here. This is the whole history of Israel. How often I, as God, would want to gather the children of Israel together as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The you there isn't the individual people. That's the leaders of Israel. You people, you, you the generation that are godless and hate Christ, you're the ones that were not willing to allow the people of Israel to come into the presence of God the way they should. You led them astray. He says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. Then he says this in verse 39, For I say to you, notice the words he uses, you, you, this kind of generation shall see me no more till you say, what? Are they going to see the coming of Jesus? These people are going to die. But he says, you're going to see him and you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying in general, that same generation that hated me, despised me, rejected me, killed me and the prophets and the apostles and the disciples, that same generation one day of Jews is going to look to Jesus and they're going to cry out and mourn and weep for the one who's coming in the sky. Jesus lumps them all together in one big generation. That's the way it's used in the Old Testament, in the Song of Moses, so many times referring to that perverse generation that will be judged in the latter days. It was of the same generation in Deuteronomy 31 that had a stiff-necked rebellion. I don't have time to go on all of those references. You can read the Song of Moses for yourself. I would read chapter 31 and 32 of um, Deuteronomy, and you can see how... Not only Moses talks about the past generation, but the present generation and the future generation. And they're all lumped together as a perverse and crooked generation that will be judged in the latter days as the words of Moses are given to us. Let me share one more with you. I think this is a good one to show you what I mean by that. In Psalm 24, 30, Psalm 24 verse 3, you know this one well. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Right? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Now, what does he mean by that? The generation of those who seek him. In other words, there's a group of people living in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation that are the generation that seek him. It's a kind of people, a quality of people, a characteristic of a people. They are the ones who seek after God, follow after God, seek God. So I would say that the passage there in Matthew 24, 34, where it says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place, refers to the kind and quality of people that existed in the time of Christ will still be here whenever Jesus comes back. I would like to add one more thought. And it kept bugging me. I was looking at it, and I looked at it over and over and over again. I kept seeing this. Look at the text again. Look at Matthew 24. Follow with me. This will come quick at you, okay? So hang tight with me. Matthew 24, 34. Jesus says this. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. You see, when I see something one time, it gets my attention. But when I read it three times in two verses, it really has my attention. I'm thinking, what in the world is Jesus saying here? See, you and I, we use the term pass away like die, right? We say, well, Aunt Susie passed away. And we mean it that she died. But that's actually not what is meant by here. It can be understood that way, but I don't believe that's what Jesus has in mind here. So I went back and just checked the original text to see exactly what the word meant. It comes from a Greek word, a combination, parokomai. You see the word erkomai, to come or to go. Some say to pass by with the word para in front of it, to pass by or to go by. And it even is translated in that way whenever Jesus passed by the crowds as parokomai, to pass by. But also in some lexicons, it does have the idea of coming to an end. But, you know, Jesus could easily use the word die if he wanted to. He used it many times in the Gospels. You know, he even talked about Lazarus. He's dead. Right? He could use the word die if he wanted to. But why does he use the word pass away? That's interesting, isn't it? And then he lumps it right in there with the same thing. Heaven and earth will pass away and my words will by no means pass away. Well, that's not the only time it's used. In fact, in uh, a few other verses, this pass away is used. Let me just read a few of them to you and you'll get the sense of it. Matthew 5, 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Same exact words. Luke sixteen seventeen. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little, one tittle of the law to fail. Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. James 1.9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he, that is the rich man, will pass away. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will, by, will come as a thief in the night, in which 
the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And then Revelation 21, 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. What's the point? Well, one of the understandings of the word that we gather from this Greek lexicon regarding parochomai is not only to just pass by, to go by, but it has the idea of coming to an end or to no longer be there. Not so much to die, all right, but just to come to an end, to come to an end. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, how does that relate to this text? Because if we were to translate it that way uh, in the text with that understanding of the, the Greek word, then we could render it this way. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means come to an end till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will come to an end, but my words will by no means come to an end. You see what he's saying? He's comparing this generation to heaven and earth. It will finally end, right? The generation will finally come to an end, the people that we're talking about here. But the word of God will not. And in all of those, without exception, every one of them, he's talking in the sense of longevity. What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus talks about this, he uses the words to refer to a long length of time. Heaven and earth, although it has been here for 6,000 plus years, will come to an end. My word, although it has been here for a very long time, will never come to an end. This generation, not this little 40-year period, but this generation of people who've been here since the time of Moses and the rebellion in the land after Egypt and have continued this way all the way through will eventually come to an end. I believe there's more being said there in that text by our Lord. Not that they will just die and that group of people will be over know that this generation will be around for a very long time just like the earth just like his word but they will come to an end whenever the lord returns so there's my final and complete presentation on this generation and i hope this generation understands what i mean about that generation in matthew 24 Let's close in prayer, okay? Father, thank you so much as we gather around your word and think about this important subject. And Lord, we thank you that you have given to us the words to study here, to examine. And I do pray, God, that you would give us insight into your word to understand the truth here given to us. And that most importantly, above all, that we would be prepared for your coming. That you are coming in a day in which the world does not expect in an hour and a day which we do not even know. But, Lord, we are to watch. We are to be sober. We are to be alert, always anticipating and eagerly looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to have that mindset every day, every hour of our work week, every day, every hour of our time together in family, and even times we gather in worship to always be anticipating the soon return of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.